my name's Lou Eisen, boxing writer and author, and I am here with my weekly podcast of Ring Talk. And I love the the photo that Eric put up there. It was uh, Ernie Terrell on the left, six foot six fighter, 210 pounds. Muhammad Ali called him the octopus because Terrell liked to jab, jab, and then get in close and hug you. And he just would stop hugging you. And Ali would say to him when he fought him, get a girlfriend or something, man. You're supposed to fight, not hug. And on the left, of course, was the hard rock from Canada, the indomitable George Chevallo, born September 12th, 1937. And this is an interesting fight. This fight took place November 1st, 1965. In Canada, in boxing, there's a lot of revisionist history. So you'll have a Canadian fighter uh, fight in Canada or in the States and get knocked down five times. And Canadian fans will say, well, or in, in boxing community, it was close. And in reality, it wasn't close. This is a different fight altogether. It was always felt by George Chevallo and his team and some boxing historians that Chevallo won the fight, but because Ernie Terrell, who was born in Mississippi in 1939, moved to Chicago, was a mob fighter. He was controlled by Bernie Glickman, a hired killer for the mob and Julius Isaacson, who was also uh, a mob man, a union man, and a boxing manager. And when you watch the fight, it's an interesting fight because Terrell's complaining. Terrell always complained uh, during the fight that uh, Chevallo was headbutting him. And uh, I, I don't have any doubt George was, but he did it for a specific reason, which was Ernie Terrell was thumbing him deliberately in the eye. He was trying to take his eye out. And that's over the line in boxing. You know, there's certain fouls, kidney shot, rabbit punch. They happen, you're not supposed to, but they happen. But trying to take a man's eye out with your thumb, you're not just beating him, you're taking away his livelihood. And that crosses the line. And the referee didn't do anything about it. Of course, uh, then again, the referee was handicapped because, you know, uh, there's mob guys there telling him to to uh, to let it go. You know, Terrell said the same thing when he fought Ali. He said, look at my eyes. He rubbed my eyes across the roads. But Ali was not a dirty fighter. It's just Ali beating the hell out of him. So in this fight, this fight encompasses uh, November 1st, 1965. It encompasses a lot of different factors. 12,500 people were at Maple Leaf Gardens that night. They paid in Toronto, $124,456.50 to see Terrell win his 14th straight fight. His record became 38-4. Chevallo's dropped to 33-10-4. Terrell was guaranteed forty-five grand or 35% of the live gate, whichever was higher, while Chevallo was also guaranteed forty-five grand, which is rare, uh, up against 25% of the live gate. You know, it's interesting. Um, UPI scored at 71.67, Terrell, five-point must system, and uh, Boxing Illustrated scored at 70.64, Terrell, and uh, the Associated Press also scored it for Terrell, too, by unanimous decision. Um, it's interesting when you see the money, 45 grand, because that's pretty well a per diem for today's fighters. You know, guys get tens of millions of dollars. These guys didn't get that. They fought for next to nothing. The official score, referee Sammy Lovespring, who was at one time the number one ranked welterweight 
in the world until he was thumbed by Steve Beloy's by accident and lost the eyesight in that eye, uh, scored it for Terrell 72-65. Uh, Judge Fred Nobert scored it 73-65 for Terrell. And Judge Billy Burke, 69-65 Terrell. Um, people, some people in boxing said, certainly Travel's team said, and it's, it's likely true because it wasn't the first time, that um, Bernie Glickman, of the outfit in Chicago, which is the mafia. Uh, it was him and Julius Isaacson, another mobster who managed uh, Terrell, that they went to the referee and the judges before the fight in Ungerman and just said, my guy wins or you end up in Lake Ontario. And that's not that, you know, I believe that that did happen because they, this was the mob. They controlled the sport and they did this quite often. In fact, the first fight between Ali and Terrell was called off because they'd threatened Ali. Bernie Glickman had come to Ali and said, you sign with us or we're going to kill you. And of course, Herbert Muhammad of the Nation of Islam had members of the Fruit of Islam before he, you know, beat, beat um, Bernie Glickman almost into a coma and the mob left them alone after that. So in this fight, Shivala wasn't really given much of a chance to win. He had trouble with stick and move fighters, but uh, George thought he had the style to be able to beat him. Um, George was trained by Teddy McWhorter, who was a pretty good trainer. The cup men at that time were Whitey Bimstein and Freddie Brown. I think George would have been better served to have Bimstein and Brown uh, running the corner rather than Teddy McWhorter, but that's just my opinion. Uh, as I said, George was born September 12, 1937, career total 73 wins. 64 by knockout, 18 losses, and two draws. Um, he stood six feet tall and weighed about 209 pounds. Uh, Terrell was 6'6", weighed about 206 pounds. Terrell had a huge uh, reach advantage of seven inches over Chevallo. And uh, George fought from 50, um, 56 to 78. He started fighting, by the way, in a tough man tournament. Uh, put on by Jack Dempsey. It was a tough man tournament held in Toronto, and his he won it. He got four knockouts in one night, and he was given $500 in a trophy, which $500 in the 50s was a considerable sum of money. He could have gone to the Olympics. George could very well have gone to the Olympics. Um, he, he, would, he was on the Olympic team, but he decided to turn pro and make money. The other factor there, of course, is the Olympic committees back, there were no such thing. So no one would have paid his flight to Australia. No one would have paid for that. He would have had to pay his own flight, which was prohibitive back then, put himself up for the two weeks of the Olympics, pay for all that. And back then, you have to understand that an Olympic gold medal wasn't the springboard it is today to untold riches when signing with a big-time promoter. And so George thought, you know, it's not worth it. And George was more of a pro-style fighter than an Olympic fighter. And it, it served him better to turn pro rather than just stay there and keep fighting amateur. Um, he had two shots at the World uh, Heavyweight title, first during Terrell, which we're talking about today, and Ali. He never got a chance at the uh, British Commonwealth title, which really upset him. He wanted to fight uh, Henry Cooper. And I asked Cooper at the International Marketing Hall of Fame, why wouldn't you fight George Chevallo? And he said, I don't fancy me face getting hit like that. And uh, 
I laugh, but, but, you know, when he asked Jim Wicks, his manager, this was attributed to Liston, but George said that when he asked his manager, Henry Cooper, why don't you, why won't uh, Henry fight me for the British Commonwealth title? Cooper says, um, Cooper's manager, excuse me, Jim Wicks says, we don't even want to meet you socially for tea. But that actually also happened when uh, Liston asked Cooper if he'd be interested in fighting. And Cooper's manager, Jim Wicks, said that as well. That's what happens with um, funny phrases like that in boxing. They get, you know, tossed around and attributed to different people. What really upset George was the Canadian Boxing Federation, which was spineless and toothless, quite a match, um, didn't put up a fight on his behalf didn't go to to the british boxing board of control which had much more power and say listen we're part of the commonwealth give my guy a shot he's ranked in the top five in the world but they wouldn't do it and um he was just really upset by that um during his career he beat some great fighters you know he beat alex mitteff yvonne durrell cleveland williams manuel ramos uh doug jones which really set his career on fire Mike Dijon, Dante Kane, and of course, Jerry Corey. Uh, in 1998, Graham Houston, who's a boxing writer who I've worked for, an editor who I've worked for, asked Shavattel, um, he was known that, he says, does it bother you that you're known mostly for absorbing punches? And he said, yeah, it does. Because if I got hit with one-tenth of the punches people say I did, I wouldn't be able to carry on this interview with you now. I'd be walking on my heels, not being able to talk. And George was always very well-spoken. So George, when he started out, he won the Canadian Amateur Heavyweight Championship, May 1955, knocked out Winnipeg's Peter Piper by Peter Piper. That was his real name. Uh, picked, a pep, uh, picked a peck of Chevalier's fist by a first-round knockout in the tournament final. final. As I said, he was chosen to represent Canada at the Melbourne Olympics, but instead he retired of his 16-0 amateur career and, and turned pro. Now, uh, George Chevalier won the the uh, Canadian well, or heavyweight title. He knocked out James J. Parker in one round, uh, September of 1958. Now, at this time, Ernie Terrell's starting off. He, he, he was an amateur fighter, and I took the liberty of writing down some of the amateur titles. He won in 1956. He won the Golden Gloves tournament. He made the finals, actually, excuse me, at light heavyweight. He did not win it, though. Uh, he won the 57 Chicago Golden Gloves Tournament at light heavyweight and the 1957 Inner City Golden Gloves Championship at light heavyweight uh, when he beat a New York fighter named Eddie Bramlett. Now, here's the thing. Chevallo, or excuse me, Ernie Terrell, fighting out of Chicago uh, is a mob fighter. Not chosen by himself, but certainly didn't put up much of a fight. And so he starts to do well in the ranks, but he's run by the Chicago mob. At that time, you know, in the early 60s, um, the world heavyweight champion from 64 on is Muhammad Ali. So what happens here is this is when the title splits. You have the, the, the NBA, National Boxing Association, ceased to be between 62 and 64. And the vacuum was filled by two criminal organizations, uh, WBC, BB Criminals, and WBA, which stands for, still to this day, without brains attached. So 
Ali, after he beats Liston, comes out and says, I'm a Muslim and I'm changing my name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. Huge uh, ruckus arises throughout the boxing world, which is ironic because tens of thousands of Americans change their religion and their name every day and still do to this day. And there's a tape you can hear of WBA uh, commissioners from various cities. And these weren't wise men or boxing men. These were store owners, shoe store owners, deli owners, you know, drugstore owners. They didn't know boxing. And when you see uh, here Ed Lastman talking, and he was the head man, and he was passing it on to Ontario's Merv McKenzie. And to hear those two men talk saying, how dare and uh, I'm not going to say the word, but an N-word think he can do that to us. Where does he get off changing his name and his religion? We should put him back in the gutter with Liston where they belong. I mean, the racism was, you, you, it was unbelievable back then. But today you just can't fathom somebody being that, that far, that, that much bigoted, that bigoted and not thinking it will come back to bite them in the ass. So they withdraw the recognition of, of Ali as the WA, WBA World Heavyweight Champion, which further devalues the WBA if even such a thing was possible. So they do that and they have a fight between Ernie Terrell and Eddie Machen. Who's going to win this fight is the new WBA champion. And Machen, who was a good fighter, but lacked confidence, he loses to Ernie Terrell. So Terrell's not a WBA champion. There's a problem, though. No one wants to fight him because there's no money in fighting Terrell because the money's in fighting Ali because he's recognized as the only world heavyweight champion. WBA is looked upon as a joke. And so Terrell can't get anyone to fight him. Now, he's controlled at that time, as I said, by Bernie Clickman and Julius Isaacson, but he's really controlled by Tony Accardo. Tony Accardo is the most powerful mob boss ever to have lived in, in the United States or Italy, anywhere in the world. So what happens in, in, in Chicago, uh, the first real big boss, you know, we have, we have uh, Jim Colosimo, then we have Johnny Torrio. Torrio retires, taken over by Al Capone. So Capone goes to prison in 31, and his, his chauffeur and bodyguard, Tony Accardo, is now the head of the mob, and he ran it until the 1990s. Never spent a day in prison. I don't know if you know the movie The Untouchables with Robert De Niro and Kevin Costner, Sean Connery. There's that scene where they're at this big uh, dining table in a hotel, and De Niro's as um, Capone knows that two of his soldiers have been disloyal, so he baseball bats them to death. Well, that happened, but it was Tony Accardo who did it, not Capone. And that's why his nickname was Joe Batters. That's what Capone said. Look at this guy. He's a real Joe Batters. And so from then until the 90s, from 31, 32, it, the mob was controlled by, in Chicago, the outfit was controlled by Tony Accardo. Yes, they had Paul DeWay to Rica. Uh, as a front man at, at times. And um, they had other people too, Sam Giancana as a front man at times, but the real power behind the throne was always, you know, uh, Tony Accardo, even when Frank Nitti was running it. So he ran it and his rackets were bootlegging, prostitution, gambling, uh, protection and boxing. He controlled boxing, he controlled Liston. No one thought Liston would lose. 
this was out of the question. It was an impossibility. So Ali wins and because of what's going on and some pressure from the mob, although I would assume some pressure from the Chicago outfit. I can't find any evidence, but then again, the mob never leaves written evidence. So they they have that fight. Terrell wins. He's the champ. Now he's got to get people to fight him. And he fights. You make the fight in uh, Toronto at Maple Leaf Garden. Chevallo didn't want to fight in Toronto because Chevallo always felt, and with some good reason, that Toronto judges and media always treated him poorly and, and didn't treat him respectfully. And he didn't want to take a chance of getting screwed over on the decision. So Chevallo's training, um, it's interesting because when you read the articles about Chevallo and Sports Illustrated by Tex Mall for this fight, but also for the Ali fight, you know, Sports Illustrated referred to George as the human punching bag. And they said that the best chance he has of beating Terrell it, it, or Ali was to wear their fists out with his chin. And it, it may seem funny, but it, it's really an unfair thing to say. George was a body puncher. He came in close. Yeah, he hit, he threw some low blows. Robert Lipsite said they counted 100 low blows that George landed on Muhammad Ali in uh, their fight. But the way they looked at it, it's boxing. That's what happens. You're coming in, guys pushing your head down, some punches stray low. A hundred, of course, is an ungainly figure, unfortunately, but but uh, this is professional boxing. It's the hurt business. So they set up for the Terrell fight, and, um, you know, Cheval's coming in with a great record. He's, he's got, he's held the Canadian heavyweight title forever. He won it with first time, first round uh, knockout over James J. Parker, September 58, as I said earlier. Then he has the three fights with Robert Clarou. Uh, of Montreal, where uh, Clarou wins the first one by a hotly disputed split decision. Chevalo won that fight without a doubt. And it was the beginning of a disturbing trend, though, for him, because this happened to him a lot in his career. And then Chevalo won the second by unanimous decision, and then Clarou wins another 12-round split decision, which actually George won. Um, you know, for a guy who's representing Canada and getting screwed by judges in his own country, it's very upsetting. But, you know, as he said after, in Montreal, judges will help out a Montreal fighter. It's not that they're going to cheat on their behalf, but if it's a close round, they'll shade it for them. In Toronto, they never do it for any Canadian fighters. And this has been a complaint of Canadian fighters going back 100 years. So Chevalo wins the Canadian heavyweight title then for um, uh, a third time uh, when he destroys Hugh Mercier in one round in March of 64 in Regina. So he's known as the hard rock from Canada. You know, he's he's a wonderful fighter, but Sports Illustrated didn't give him uh, much chance. They said that uh, Terrell's a champion, but still a champion, but the crown sits atop his head, doesn't make him the big man in the world of boxing. That belongs to Ali. And he's only the champion of the WBA. He's not the heavyweight champion of the world. Terrell didn't like this. He said, people make fun of me. Uh, people uh, uh, belittle me because I, I like to sing with my group. And um, they said a victory over Chevallo or his victory over Chevallo won't change Terrell's public um, uh, image. People will still dislike him. Dislike him. Excuse me. Also, Terrell hardly used his right hand at all in defeating uh, Chevallo. 
they said he just used his jab, his stinging left jab, to Chevalier's face from the opening bell until the final gong. Now, where the controversy lies here is the fact that uh, Chevalier's team has always claimed, and there's good evidence to support this, that uh, Terrell's management, his mob guys, went to the judges and the referee and Irv Ungerman and said, listen, my guy wins or you end up in Lake Ontario. And it's November, so it's quite cold there now. And this wasn't the first time Bernie Glickman had done that to guys facing his fighters. This was a professional killer. And George said when they were driving on the DVP towards, um, or, or the gardener, excuse me, towards uh, Maple Leaf Gardens, he said, uh, Irv Ungerman just was out of his mind and he asked him what was going on. And he said, I was threatened by a Cardinals people. You know, Bernie Glickman threatened me. And, and I believe that because they did that to everyone. Glickman, of course, in the end, is the big loser because he turned state's evidence against Tony Accardo and after, after being beaten up by the Fruit of Islam, was in an insane asylum under heavy protection until the day he died. Um, it did not work out for him, as it usually doesn't for most mobsters. So they have this fight and, you know, it's a five-point must system and works like the 10-point must system, but five points. And Chevalo's battering um, Terrell's body. You, you can see the fight. Terrell's trying to thumb him del deliberately. Terrell's elbowing him, stepping on his feet. Terrell was great at fouling people and then blaming them for trying to do the same thing to him. And if they did, you couldn't blame them because that's what he wanted to do and did successfully. And it's the only time I ever saw in any of George's fights where he turned to the referee and just went, hey, you know, you're trying to take my eye out. Do something. So the referee warned them both. And it didn't stop uh, Terrell from doing that. So um, they go a hard 15 rounds. Everyone has it by unanimous decision for Terrell. People I've spoken to were there said Terrell won it by unanimous decision. But you, you, can't, you can't take out the mob factor. And indeed, one of the New York writers said after, you know, more, more of a question than the decision and the scores rendered by the judges and the referee is how on earth did a professional killer like Bernie Glickman gain entry into Canada to work a fighter's corner? They said, it's not, does Canada have a different laws with regarding to, to murder than other countries do? Does Canada say, well, if you murder someone in the States, you're more than welcome to come up here. They didn't check him out. Canadian Customs didn't look at his background. They said, it's easy to check his background. Just pick up any American newspaper and it'll tell you all about him. You know, Canadian government, the Mounties couldn't have called the FBI and asked. I mean, he was notorious, but that's why when, when uh, later on when Terrell was offered a fight with Ali in Toronto, he turned it down and said, I don't want to come back to a communist country. Obviously, we're not a communist country. What he was saying was, I don't want to come back and face Ali when I can't have my mob guys there. But in the end, the mob guys didn't help because Ali won every round. So Chevalier was very upset and for years and, and still to this day, he'll tell you that, you know, I beat him. And he said the press was taking his picture after the fight and uh, the, uh, the belt was being held up, and then they announced that Terrell won. And I've seen the fight. It was a close fight. 
it was a close fight. The fight could have gone either way. Um, as I said, George had trouble with guys that were taller. Everyone does. And that's, they can move. But I think he gave a great fight, a great, great fight uh, towards Terrell. And if he was going to win the title, that was his night. And he was just upset that no one went to bat for him. And after the fight, he was yelling at Irv Ungerman, why did you have the fight here? Why couldn't we have it somewhere else other than Toronto where I can easily get screwed and I get screwed all the time? And I guess the answer to that question is you have to fight with whoever will take it. And that's where they can make the most money. They wanted to have it up here in in uh, Toronto, and for a good reason. Trail couldn't get a boxing license in New York State, which would have been the biggest moneymaker. You know, that would have been the best place to have it, or Chicago, or other places, because he was a mob fighter, and his associates were convicted killers. Therefore, they said no, because of the people you associate with, we're not going to give you a boxing license. So they had to go to Canada. And that's sort of the funny thing about it, where... You know, Canada's saying, oh, you're a convicted killer? Well, you can come up here and work in boxing. That's fine with us. And that's essentially what happened. So uh, George goes on, and and uh, he he continues to fight. And a year later, you know, March 29th, 1966, he fights Muhammad Ali, and he loses by unanimous decision. And, you know, George had fights where, you know, he beats – Floyd Patterson in the fight of the year, but because Patterson was a New York fighter and a former world champion, and the fight was in New York at Madison Square Garden, the decision goes to Patterson. And that's an interesting fight because it went 12 rounds. It was scheduled for 15. Patterson wouldn't fight 15. He refused. And of course, a couple minutes after the 12th round, Patterson collapses and goes to the hospital for internal bleeding because of George's vicious body attack, meaning if the fight went 15, George would have won by knockout. So George had decisions like that where close fights where he had it stolen from him at times. And it embitters a man. It's difficult when you're giving everything you have in your life, when you're spending time away from your children and your wife and you're, and you're running 15, 20 miles a day and chopping trees and thousands of sit-ups and thousands of push-ups and thousands of hours sparring hitting the heavy bag and speed bag and to go in there and get ripped off. And one thing George didn't have throughout his career, there were several things. One was he had Irv Ungerman because Irv had a bit of a boxing background, although he was a poultry man, but he didn't have mob muscle. He didn't have people that had been in the game a long time and would know how to move him and make sure the judges were honest and that no one could interfere. He just, didn't have that. Also, when George started, you have to understand there weren't any really high-level boxing trainers. So George said he skipped levels of his boxing education because, you know, a lot of guys fight four rounds, six, eight rounds, and 10, 12, you know. Well, George didn't do that. His first, all his fights were 15-round fights, except for the Patterson fight. They were all headline. He was a headliner immediately. He was the only name in the country. So he didn't have the proper trainer american trainer to hone off the rough edges and and to show him the tricks of the trade it changed when he got teddy mcquarter from detroit who was a pretty you know a good trainer but it also changed for him when he was in new york in the early 60s and he met charlie goldman who trained marty serval walter white champ rocky marciano and he said to george you keep throwing your punches out the window don't loop them so he tied george's feet to the canvas and he said twist your strength comes from pushing off your back leg, twist at the hips, shoulder snap. 
And after that, George started to knock out a lot of people. He became a much better fighter. So the Terrell fight always has stuck in George's craw and in the craw of a lot of Canadians. So there's, there's, as I said, there's two bodies of opinion. There's some people that think, you know, he it, Terrell won the fight and George is very upset with Sammy Lutzbring, but if you're threatened by the mob, really, in, what are you going to do? Side with your friend and lose your life? You can't. So George did his best. Uh, he gave Terrell a good fight. Terrell never hurt him. But in the end, he goes down as uh, losing the fight by unanimous decision. And the fight would not have been held in the States because of Terrell's precarious position with different um, state boxing commissions. Uh, the only other place could have been Montreal, and he never received fair treatment in Montreal, George. So Toronto was really the only other place that had the population that could pay the money that the tickets were costing to go watch him fight. And it was a good fight. Uh, people um, people were thrilled. They were disappointed that he lost, but, you know, that's that's the game. You have to be able to accept that. Uh, George initially retired in 73, came back in 78 to win the Canadian heavyweight title again against pretty boy Bob Felstein, who wasn't so pretty after that. And as George said, 30 years after I die, I'll still be the Canadian heavyweight champion. Uh, he fought two more times after that in 78, and then he retired. But, you know, he did a lot of commercials. He was in the movie The Fly, you know, remember where Jeff Goldblum breaks his arm in the arm wrestling match. And um, uh, Ernie Terrell was a guy that um, uh, he died in 212 and, you know, he, he died of dementia. He, his sister, Jean Terrell, was a member of the Supremes. People sometimes equate him with Tammy Terrell, different spelling. That was the young Mutan Singh who died of a brain tumor. That was not a relation to Ernie Terrell. Uh, Ernie Terrell, when I met him at the Hall of Fame, and I talked to him and you're with Angelo, right? So you like Muhammad. I said, I love Muhammad, he's my hero. And where are you from? Toronto. Ah, you're from Toronto, Chevalo's town. So you think Chevalo beat me? And I said, well, you know, it was a good fight. It was a close fight. And, uh, you know, but um, he said, yeah, he was a dirty fighter. I said, but, you know, with all due respect, Mr. Terrell, and don't forget you're 6'6", and I'm not, um, you claim that against everyone you fought. You claimed all fighters were dirty. And yet there's clear video of you fouling George 60, 70, 80 times, stepping on his toes, elbowing him forearms you're trying to thumb his eye out so uh tom here thank you terrell originally won the belt off of eddie machin when it was declared vacant by the wba after ali converted to islam and changed his name um so it was a nice conversation with him but he says yeah everyone from Toronto says that, you know, the mob won the fight for me, but I wasn't a mob fighter. And I said, come on, that's not true. And you know it. Bernie Glickman turned state's evidence and he named you as one of his fighters. It, it you know, there's a permanent Senate subcommittee investigating organized crimes influence in professional boxing started in the 50s. It's an ongoing committee. <coughs> Excuse me. So 
Blitkin said under oath, he named names. He named Accardo and Frankie Carpo and Blinky Plimpton. And he said, yes, we controlled Ernie Terrell, lock, stock, and barrel. And I said to him, I'm not saying you couldn't fight or that you weren't a great fighter, but having paid killers in your corner, uh, it's quite convincing to judges who like to go home and see their family again. He said that was overblown. Uh, you know, the Senate subcommittee says otherwise. You know, so did the FBI. And uh, it wouldn't have, you know, and he said, well, sometimes they make mistakes. Yes, but you can trace it from the 1920s until today. So it's hard to believe that what you're saying is true. But anyways, he didn't want to upset him anymore, even though he's in his 70s, still a very physically big man. Um, and, uh, you know, continued. He worked with youth. He had a, a band that he would sing with. Uh, Cheval, near the end of his, uh, you know, everyone knows George Cheval's story. It's filled with an incredible tragedy. Um, three of his four sons, Jesse, George, Lee, and Stephen, got hooked on heroin. Jesse committed suicide in 85. George Lee died from an overdose in 93. And shortly after that, his wife, Lynn, took her own life. And three years later, after that, his son, Stephen, died from an overdose. When I was with George once, just thinking about him, he would start to cry and he would say, you know, they're on my mind all day, every day. And that's the hardest blows George ever took. Never knocked down the ring, but certainly knocked down outside of life. I don't, I don't know of any, I certainly couldn't recover from that. You know, I, I couldn't. I don't know any man or woman who could. But George got on with his life and looked after his grandchildren. And he said to me, I only have my oldest son and my oldest daughter that are still alive. And his daughter with his fifth child. Um, uh, I was with George one night in 213 at the Shaw Festival here in Toronto. It, it's a boxing event to raise money for the Shaw Festival. And that day, his uh, granddaughter, who he was closer to than anyone probably, who, who had won, you know, uh, Governor General's Award for being the top student in Canada. And George's son, Mitch, by the way, won the same award for being the top teacher in Canada. She passed away from cancer in 213. Uh, she spoke three languages and uh, she was a school teacher. And he said that was the one that almost ended my life and sent me over the edge. He said, I loved her like crazy. And he said, and he was in tears. He said, the sad thing is she was only 30 years old. So I, the, the, the person running the event at a downtown hotel and said, George, I'm so sorry for your loss, but you, you were paid a week ago. You don't have to be here. We understand what's going on. Just please go home. Take care of yourself. And he said, no, I made a commitment to help these fighters, and I'm going to stay and do that. It's good to get out, and just I have to keep going. And I was, you know, I stood there in tears myself. But that's George Chevallo. He was, you know, born to Croatian immigrants who worked at, at Royce DuPont Canada. Poultry in, in 1937, September 12th, as I said earlier. But I think he came from the Canadian Shield. Because when you see the pictures of him, his musculature is incredible. And uh, as one uh, writer, Nat Fleischer, said, you know, built like a tank, incredibly strong, powerful legs, thick neck, and could, you know, punch, knockout power, crushing knockout power in both hands. So... Chris Dundee, my mentor's brother, Angelo Dundee's brother, the promoter and fight manager, 
And they asked him, who's the toughest fighter? This is in the 70s you've ever seen. And he said, well, I knew them all. I knew John L. Sullivan, didn't see him fight, but I did see Jeffries and Corbett and all those guys. So I knew them all from Sullivan right up to Mike Tyson. The toughest of all of them were just flat out tough, that kid in Canada, up north, Chevallo. George Chevallo? Yeah, that guy. That's the guy. Never seen a tougher fighter in any weight division in my life. And I have to tell you a funny story uh, here. Uh, I was with George and Angelo Dundee and, two, and a bunch of people in, I guess, 2009, 2010, at the International Boxing Hall of Fame in Canastota, New York. And I'm with Angelo, and we're on ESPN. And they're asking him about the Klitschko brothers. And someone said uh, to me, well, you're from Canada, right? You're a boxing historian. How would George Chevallo in his prime do? Well, that's a good question, depending how many rounds the fight was. Don't forget Rocky Marciano said, uh, if fights were 50 rounds long, George Chevallo would be a world champion forever. You know, uh, Nat Fleischer said he was born 100 years too late. Should have been a bare knuckle fighter because fighter, no one could have beaten him. So I asked Angelo, I said, Ange, what do you, who do you think would win between Klitschko and the Klitschkos and, and uh, George? And Ange thought for a second. He said, well, against Vitaly, he'd probably take him out in nine rounds. And against Vladimir, probably 11. And the ESPN announcer said, really? The fight would go that long? Why would it take him that long? And Angelo said, well, George is 70 years old. You'd have to give him time to warm up. And so that got a big laugh all the way around. Um, George, in the minds of many, beat him, beat Terrell. He just didn't have the muscle in his corner to support his win. He had two five-inch uh, cuts over his left eye. He had to get 10 stitches after. Terrell had to cut two. It's one of those things in boxing that really, you know, you watch and it's just not a satisfying ending. Everyone thinks George is going to win, that he's done enough. And then it just didn't happen that way. And this was common in fights where mob fighters were involved. Uh, George is still alive today. And, and he unfortunately has dementia, but he has moments of lucidity. I love him. Uh, he made boxing viable again in this country. He made everything viable again in this country because Wherever you travel, and I've been to Europe and the States and Mexico, wherever you go, you know, you're from Canada, you know, George Chevallo, as if we're that small a country. But that's what people associate with Canada, George Chevallo. And the reason is he fought Ali. Ali had billions of fans because he was a Muslim. And those fans know and respect Chevallo. And George, on his own merit, very decent man, lovely man, you know, doesn't discriminate, likes everyone, speaks English, Croatian, spoke Yiddish, uh, could speak French. So just a, a very educated man and a wonderful man, should have been a world heavyweight champion. He said there was a different ring, Canadian heavyweight champ, but he said, but world heavyweight champ. You know, that means that you're the best, not just in Canada, but in the entire world. And he could have used the money at that time too, although he saved his money wisely and invested it wisely. But uh, it's hard when you list the greatest Canadian fighters of all time. And people will say, well, is Shrattle the greatest Canadian fighter? And you, you could say yes, 
And then they would say, wait a minute, how about Lou Briard? He won a welterweight middleweight title. How about Jimmy McLarnan? You know, most people would generally accept that Sam Langford is the greatest Canadian fighter of all time and the greatest fighter after won a world title. But George Chevalo is up there with any of them. He belongs in any top 10 list in the top five. A great fighter. He And after him, there were so many other great fighters. But they came along because they were influenced by George. And George took a hand in the careers of so many other fighters, such as Lennox Lewis and Troy Ross and the Hiltons in Montreal, Scotty Olsen. I mean, Art Hafey, you know, the great uh, featherweight champ. So you can see George's imprint on the sport all over. And I wish, I wish that Canada Post would do the right thing and issue a line of stamps honoring George Chevalo and Sam Langford and, and the other 12 Canadians in the International Boxing Hall of Fame, yet they haven't done that. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Uh, yes, Tom, you can read about Lou Briard on my Substack, which is my paid site, Lou Eisen at substack.com. And I'm just gonna be posting a thing on Lou Briard later today. Uh, lots of articles and, and stuff up there. I already have articles on uh, George Fuljamis, um, George Godfrey, uh, Budge Byers, George Budge Byers, and of course, Johnny Kalan, and there'll be many more to come. So please visit that site. Thank you for watching today. Hope you learned something. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next week on Ring Talk. I'm Lou Eisen. Have a good day.